God's Word. Turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 5. We'll begin in verse 41. John, chapter 5, verse 41. Hear now the word of the Lord. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings... How will you believe my words? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time where we can now turn into your word and behold the mysteries therein. Father, I do pray that you would come and speak to your people this morning. I pray that as we look now at the conclusion of this discourse that we've been working through, that you would help us to take away the truths that we have been marveling at. The chief among them, that we would marvel at the truth of who Christ is and why he has come. The authority that you had bestowed upon him and the representative he was to your glory on earth. So Father, help us to see Jesus this morning. Help us to turn our eyes to him afresh. Help us to allow the things of this earth to grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you're doing in the hearts and minds and lives of your people. We pray that you would continue to do your faithful work this morning through your word. In Christ's name, amen. amen. You can be seated. Well, good morning, church. It is good to be back with you again. Well, like everyone else this week, uh, my heart has been broken by the horrific tragedy that took place at Covenant School in Nashville, Tennessee. No doubt for us as believers and as a church, and particularly as a church with a private school attached to it, this hits close to home. Three nine-year-old children and three adults murdered in cold blood because of who they were, and because of what school they belonged to. One of the victims was the pastor's daughter, a nine-year-old little girl. I cannot imagine what those families are going through right now. But make no mistake about it, they died because of their faith. This was an ideological execution murder driven by hatred, fueled by a godless and evil ideology. And the only reason that six people are gone today is because they were Christians who went to a Christian school that belonged to a Christian church that believes the Bible. They went to a school that stands on what God has said about man and woman, that holds to God's design for the sexes, 
and that repudiates these ideologies thrust upon this world that are actively destroying the lives and minds of countless individuals like this young woman who carried out this horrific act. But Christian, while this is devastating and grievous news, for those of us who believe the Bible, this actually should not be surprising news. As Christ will say in this very gospel that we are studying, just before His own bloody and murderous death, as some of His last words to His disciples in John chapter 15, He said this, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. The world hates you, Christian. The world will persecute you. Christ told us as much. And while this is horrific and grievous news, it is not altogether surprising. And it won't be the last we see of it either. In fact, they are actively calling for more violence against Christians. And they're actually blaming Christians for the violence that was undertaken. But how are we to respond to this hatred, to this persecution? Are we to return hate for hate? Are we to form militias and take up arms offensively and physically fight back? No, we are not. Rather, we are called to respond like Christ. And the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. They are not carnal. We are called to love our enemies and to fight back with the truth. And when it comes to the LGBTQ movement, this is not a time to back down on what God's Word says. This is not a time for us to be silent or to cower in fear over what they may or may not do. This is not a time for us to use veiled language, or much worse, to participate in their delusions. And make no mistake about it, it is absolutely delusional for a man to think they are a woman or for a woman to think they are a man. That is not an insult, that is a fact. What we are witnessing in these evil times is truly supernatural judgment upon our nation and the nations around the world. Just as Romans 1 tells us, Romans 1, 26, For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. That's, that's what we're witnessing all around our nation today. 
is the debasement, the supernatural debasement of the human mind into deeper and deeper sin and rebellion against God. If you wonder why the issues are getting worse and worse and more prevalent with each passing year, this is why. Judgment. And because Christians have the gall to tell them that this is not how God created us, that they are rebelling against nature, that they should repent and be reconciled to God, that Christ stands ready to forgive, they hate us for it. And they will always hate us for it. And it's not just those who participate in these things. Actually, verse 32 of Romans 1 makes it clear that it's also those who give approval to such things. We cannot in any way participate nor give approval to this evil that has been thrust upon our society. I occasionally get asked if we should accommodate one's so-called preferred pronouns so as not to cause an offense. Let me be perfectly clear on where I stand on that. Absolutely not. If they are offended with the pronouns that accord with creation, with the way that they were designed by God, they are offended with God and not you. Pastors like Preston Sprinkle and J.D. Greer and others who advocate for what they are calling pronoun hospitality are compromising the truth and they are not helping those they are professing to love. It is not helpful to anyone to play along with their sin and their delusion, and it's not honoring to God to speak falsely about the way He has created somebody. God has not made mistakes in the way He has fashioned people. Now, that does not mean that we need to speak harshly or be unnecessarily provocative, but it does mean that we need to speak truthfully no matter what that may cost. And Christ has given us an example of that. This is the example that we have actually been witnessing in this very discourse that we have been working through for the past several weeks in the Gospel of John. And in the final words of this discourse today, we're going to see just how willing Christ really was to speak hard truths to those who hated Him but needed to hear it. And we need to be willing to do the same. Remember the situation that Christ is in. Already here at the beginning of His ministry, the Jewish leaders were seeking to put Him to death. They had charged Him with breaking the Sabbath and being a a blasphemer, and they wanted to kill Him for it. And instead of backing down, instead of being silent or just trying to defuse the situation so as not to cause an offense, Jesus doubles down on the truth. And He explains exactly who He is, and He explains exactly who they are. And in His closing remarks that we're going to look at today, Jesus issues a final rebuke to these Jewish leaders centered on their unbelief. He issues two main truth statements about their current standing before God, that they are void of the love of God and that they are condemned by the law of God. Void of the love of God and condemned by the law of God. And Jesus is not telling them these things to bask in their condition. 
nor to boast in his superior status before God. He is telling them these truths in order to love them. He is telling them these truths in love so that some might be brought out and brought to repentance in faith. Remember what he said last week in verse 34, I say these things so that you may be saved. That's his motive. That is his heart. And because that is his heart, he speaks the truth. He's not after their approval. As we look at this today, I hope we learn both from the contents of his words, but also from his example. The example of Christ, I hope, is a call to courage for those of us who believe the truth, that we would not shy back from speaking that which is true, even if, like, like the situation was for Christ, even if it could lead to loss for us in our lives, or even if it could lead to the loss of our lives. Christ knew full well that these men were intent on killing him, and yet he tells them the truth anyway. Living in a day and age that it was equally hostile to the truth, my prayer is that we would have the same courage. And what I hope he, we get from the content of what he tells them is that we would see that living a God-honoring, God-centered, God-loving life begins and ends with Christ, with faith in Christ, with trusting in Christ. That's what we're going to see today. So let's look at this, the end of this glorious discourse. Before we get to those two truths that Jesus issues, he actually makes a statement here about his own motive and purpose. Look at verse 41. Jesus says, I do not receive glory from people. Now we have to go back a little to understand how Jesus is using this short statement to transition into these final words to the Jewish leadership. Up to this point in the discourse, it has largely been an explanation of Christ's identity, His purpose, and His authority. In it, as a defense against the charges of Sabbath-breaking and blasphemy, Christ has been very explicit about who He is and what He has the authority to do. He has declared Himself to be the Son of God, in unity with the Father, carrying out the Father's will on earth and exercising the Father's authority according to His own will. He has the power to bestow life and He has declared Himself to be the judge of all of humanity. He is the prophesied divine Son of Man who will raise the dead by the sheer power of His voice. And he declared that the truth of all of this, the truth of who he is, has been testified to by John the Baptist, by his works, his teachings and miracles, by the direct testimony of the Father from heaven, and by the entirety of the Holy Scriptures. Now, the reason why all of this is important to remember, because all of that is feeding into what he says here in verse 41. I do not receive glory from people. What does he mean by that? Well, the word glory has a few different usages. It can mean brightness and splendor and the radiance of a thing or a person, but it can also mean honor or praise or recognition 
or the status of a thing or a person. And clearly, in this context, and down in verse 44, the use of glory carries the latter meaning. This is about recognition and honor and status. And when Jesus says he does not receive glory from people, he is saying that his status does not come from man. He is making it clear that he is not telling them everything that he has just explained to them in order to receive praise from them, in order to get their approval or to acquire some worldly admiration and status from them. Contrary to how they function on a regular basis, he wasn't trying to impress them with who he is. That wasn't his purpose. Rather, his glory, his status, his praise comes from God and not from man. It comes from his Father. So this statement is giving explanation to what he is not doing with everything he already said, seeking worldly approval and praise. But it is also transitioning into what they are doing, which we will see Jesus address here in just a minute. But first, he starts with a scathing and very clear rebuke about who they are. Look at this first truth statement he issues in verse 42. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. He does not mince words. I think at this point the only thing that was keeping these guys back from doing what they already intent on doing, killing Christ, was simply divine restraint. Because with this statement, Jesus is attacking the very core of who these guys profess to be. And something I want you to notice here, something I want to explain here, this is actually another direct statement in display of Jesus' omniscience, His having all knowledge as God. Now, the ESV's rendering actually veils that a little bit, because in the original language it literally says, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God within you. And virtually every other translation has rendered it that way. Jesus says, I know you. It's not that he just knows something about them, but he knows them. He's not making a a judgment here based on just some mere observations or some things that he's heard. He is declaring to know the very hearts of these men. And he looks at them and calls out what he knows to be true of them. Again, this is just another illustration, just like with the woman of the well and how he displayed to know her of what John said about Jesus back in chapter 2, verse 24, when he said, Jesus knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. He is, in fact, the omniscient God. He is all-knowing. He knows the very hearts of all men. And he knows these guys in particular do not have the love of God within them. Now we have to ask, what does he mean by love of God? That phrase is a little bit ambiguous. That could either be the love that God gives, the love that God bestows, but it could also mean love for God. And the context and subject matter make it very clear that he's speaking about love for God. These men, 
these leaders of the Jews had true, no true love for God in their hearts. Now, can you imagine how angry they must have been being confronted with this? These are men who have built their entire lives around God. They have given everything to sing to it that their lives did not transgress the law of God. They have built their lives around pietistic practices of prayer and fasting and studying God's law. They were teachers of God's word and leaders of God's people. And remember, the typical Jews at the time believed them to be models of godliness. They were the men most revered by the people for their supposed holiness and piety and godliness. And yet here is this renegade Jesus who has the gall to publicly declare to them, I know you, that you do not have the love of God inside of you. The truth is, outward forms of religion and piety mean absolutely nothing if they do not proceed from an inward reality. And this was the primary problem with the Jews. They were true legalists in every sense of the word. They engaged in externalism. Their righteousness and holiness was measured by mere external adherence to the law, but it had no heart-level reality to it at all. And sadly, we, we all know that this legalism is alive and well today. And certainly, we could think of denominations or groups who measure their holiness by what they wear or what rules they adhere to. But what's more important than recognizing that is recognizing the temptation in all of our hearts to make our relationship with God about checking certain boxes. As long as we have our devotional time or we read our Bibles or we pray or we come to church or we put something in the offering box or we dress a certain way or we avoid certain activities, etc., as long as we check those boxes, then we feel good about our relationship with God. But if that is the measure of our holiness, then we have progressed no further than Jewish legalism because you can do all of that without any true love for God in your heart. This is why later in Jesus' ministry, he will once again have very direct words for these men in Matthew 23, just before his death, and he will refer to them as whitewashed tomb full of dead men's bones. Oh, you look good on the outside, but inside you're dead. Holiness, true holiness, comes from the heart. Those types of activities that I listed ought to be done, for sure. We ought to discipline ourselves in the Christian life, but they ought to proceed from love for God, from the heart, love for God dwelling within us. They ought not to be in an attempt to earn God's approval or love from God or to earn one's righteousness. In doing so, that's not coming from the heart. That's just legalism. But in order for it to come from the heart, one has to have a new heart. Because the human heart by nature does not love God and does not obey God from within, no matter how religious one may be. And the Jews were the highest example of that truth. 
And Jesus gives a, a couple of lines of evidence here for the lack of love for God in their heart. Look at verses 43 and 44. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? These are, again, more sharp and direct words. And the first thing we need to look at here, the first thing he points out, is that he has come in his Father's name and they do not receive him. And what does that mean? Well, to come in someone's name is to come as their emissary. It is to come as their representative. And it is to come under their authority and to exercise their authority on their behalf. As Jesus has said and continues to say, He has come in the authority of the Father, as a representative of the Father. He has been declaring the Father's words, and He's been exercising the Father's works. As He said in the beginning of this discourse, He only does what He sees the Father doing. Jesus' ministry from His part was intended to bring glory to the Father. He came in His name to reveal the Father to His people and to reveal His glory. That's what He was doing. In fact, at the end of His ministry in John 17, in His high priestly prayer, Jesus actually prayed this in verse 4. He says, Father, I have glorified You on earth, having accomplished the work that You gave Me to do. That's what He's after. That's what Jesus was doing as the Father's representative, as the one who came in His Father's name. And this was the known messianic prophecy from Psalm 18 as we read that the coming Messiah would come in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. The Jewish people knew this. Those very words would be the words that some of the Jewish people would cry out on Palm Sunday, on this Sunday, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna! Less than a week before those same crowds would cry out for his execution. Jesus came as the prophesied Messiah in the name of his Father to his own people. But yet his own people did not truly receive him. Now, what does that mean to receive him? In this context, to receive him is to believe upon him. It is, it is to believe that he is who he says he is and trust in him as such. That idea is the very heart of the new covenant that he came to establish, and it's the heart of what it means to be a Christian, to trust in the revealed Christ. And anyone, any Jew who was truly trusting in God, who truly loved God, would naturally love His Son as He is revealed to the world. And many did. Not everyone re rejected Him. We have to remember that. I mean, certainly you have His disciples who received and believed upon Christ right away. But even beyond that, there were others. Even when, when Christ was a baby, if you remember at the beginning of Luke's gospel, when his parents took him to the temple when he was eight days old, you have the old man Simeon 
who loved God and was said to be a righteous man, waiting on the consolation of Israel, the Lord's Christ. And when he saw the baby, he knew immediately and declared that his eyes had seen the salvation of God. That was a man who truly loved the Father, who truly had the love of God within him. And it was manifested, it was shown by his receiving and believing upon God's Son. But to reject God's Son is to reject God. Rejection of the Son is rejection of the Father. And the evidence that these Jewish leaders had no love for God within them was plain in their hatred for God's Son. Jesus came for the glory of the Father, and they wanted nothing of it. Because their religion was really not focused upon God. It was not focused upon the Father. It was focused upon self. It was focused upon the glory of man rather than the glory of God. Which is why they were very happy to receive someone who came in their own name. Look what Jesus says. You do not receive me, but if another comes in his own name, you will receive him. See, what's important to know is Jesus was not the first nor the last Jew to come along and claim to be the Messiah. In fact, there were dozens upon dozens of them. Who, some came before Christ and some after. And the secular first century historian Josephus has documented several that came before 70 A.D., the destruction of Jerusalem. And what is remarkable is how willing and ready the Jews were to receive such men. As one commentator noted, it's just a historical fact. It is an embarrassing historical fact for the Jews how willing they were to receive false messiahs. Contrary to the to Jesus, these messianic pretenders came in their own name, meaning they came in their own authority in order to exalt themselves and to seek their own glory. Jesus came in his Father's name, in his Father's authority, in order to exalt his Father and to seek his glory. But these Jews, at heart, were so void of the love of God that they were easily drawn away by the glory of man and they were repulsed by the glory of God. Many believe, and I think that they are right, that this verse actually has a prophetic warning to it. As Jesus warned in Matthew 24 that many false Christs would come. And many had come, and many more would come. And because the Jews sought after and lived for the glory of man rather than the glory of God, they were easily duped. And drawn away. The desire for the glory of man actually prevented them from seeing the glory of God, which was right in front of them. Which is why Jesus says what he says in verse 44 How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? See, this is a rhetorical question. Jesus is not expecting an answer. The answer is implied in the question, and the answer is you can't. Jesus is making a statement here, and he is saying that you cannot believe when you are caught up 
and receiving glory from one another. When you have bent your life around seeking praise and admiration of others rather than from God. If your goal is to gain status in the eyes of men rather than the eyes of God, then you will not believe the truth. You cannot believe the truth. And for these Jewish leaders, this means they will never believe the true Messiah who is standing before them because he did not come with words of flattery. He did not come seeking the approval of these men. He was not here pandering to their accolades as the messianic pretenders, the false Christs, were. They came issuing flattery to gain a following. But rather, Christ, he has come with a different message. He's come with a message of repentance, declaring that all men are sinful and need to be born again, born from above, from the lowliest sinners like the woman at the well to the most exalted rabbis like Nicodemus, all have the same need, and the need is a new heart and life from above. His message was that no man has nor can nor ever will earn his way into the kingdom of God, and everyone is entirely dependent upon the grace and mercy of God for salvation. To accept that message is to humble oneself and to acknowledge one's own depravity in need. It is to be poor in spirit, recognizing the destitution of one's own soul, that apart from Christ you have nothing. No matter how much status or wealth or knowledge you have accumulated in this world, it is all nothing without Christ. And one's own righteousness will not help one's own soul one iota on the day of judgment. As long as these leaders refuse to see this and continue to seek and receive glory and approval from one another, they cannot believe. They will not believe. And that's not just true for them. That is true for everyone. As Paul said in Galatians chapter 1, he said, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. You, you cannot have in your heart both a love for self and a love for God. Because you will either seek the approval of man in love for yourself, or you will seek the approval of God in love for God. And we are to be a people who live for the approval of God. The glory that comes from God, not from man. Now we need to clarify what that means, because often overly zealous people can think that that means, well, I'm just not going to care about what anybody thinks. Only God. And therefore they run around treating people harsh and unloving, in the way that they are speaking the truth, the Bible becomes a hammer and everyone and everything becomes a nail. And that's not at all what I am saying, nor is that what the Scripture prescribes. In fact, Scripture tells us that we are to be kind and tenderhearted towards one another, Ephesians 4. That we are to care for one another, considering each other higher than ourselves, Philippians 2. 
Yes, we are to speak the truth, and sometimes that includes corrections and rebukes, but even then, that's to be carried out in gentleness, 2 Timothy 2. So don't think that only living for the approval of God means that you don't care about how you treat other people. It's precisely the opposite. You know, you, you care about how you treat other people precisely because you are living for the approval of God. But motive matters. If you're treating people kindly because you want them to applaud you and applaud your servitude and like you, then you're just living for your own glory. But if you're doing these very same things because you want to please God and love His people, obey His word, then you are living for His glory. Motive matters. These Pharisees did a lot of spiritual things. They did a lot of good deeds. They gave a lot of money. They prayed a whole lot. They abstained from a lot. They fasted a lot. They studied a lot. But Jesus tells us in Matthew 6 that they did it so others would recognize. That they would be praised and honored by others for their holiness. And as a result of that, he also said that they had received their reward in full. You want to live for the praise of man? You'll get it. You'll get your reward. You'll get the admiration you're after. And you'll receive that reward in full. But you won't receive the approval or reward of God. You have to choose between the two. The leaders were void of the love of God. Despite what they professed, they did not truly care about that. They just wanted glory from one another. They wanted honor from each other. And because of that, they would not and could not believe in the Son whose sole purpose was to glorify His Father. And as a result of that, Jesus has one more hard truth for them. This second main true statement is really the conclusion to it all. Look at these last three verses. Verse 45. Do not think I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who will accuse you. Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus is once again raising the intensity here. Again, taking part of their very identity and flipping it on them. The Pharisaical claim was that they were children of Abraham, which they boasted in. They're going to boast in it in John chapter 8. But it was also that they were disciples of Moses, which they boasted in, as they will boast in in John chapter 9. John 9, they said, We are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, Jesus, we do not know where he comes from. See, that's how they thought of themselves. Disciples of Moses. Moses being God's chief representative in the Old Covenant and the giver of the law, they saw themselves as His disciples, carrying on His torch, living according to His words and His writings. And this is what they based their entire lives around. And this is why Jesus says, He is the one on whom you have set your hope. Their hope of entrance into the kingdom of God was built around adherence to the law of Moses. 
And yet Jesus is here saying that the Moses that they claim to follow is the very one who accuses them before the Father. And notice that's in the present tense. That is a present, active reality. At the time of this interchange, the accusations of Moses were already condemning these leaders. That's why Jesus says, don't think I'm going to accuse you to the Father. Why? They didn't have to. They were already condemned, as is the rest of the world. Because of that, there was, there was nothing to accuse. It was already done. The law of Moses had done it for him. This is why his purpose in coming was not to condemn, but to save. The world is already condemned. The world doesn't need a condemner. It needs a Savior. And John made this clear back in chapter 3. Verse 17, For God did not send His Son into the world in order to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. At the very moment that these men thought they were standing on solid ground as disciples of Moses submitting to the law, they were actually standing condemned, accused by Moses as transgressors of the law. Because even the law itself is not about externalism. It's about rendering obedience to God from the heart. It was always about that. And for this reason, when Jesus addresses the law in the Sermon on the Mount, He takes it to the heart level to show where true obedience lies. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It does not matter if you obey the letter of the law, if you violate the spirit of it. God does not desire legalistic rule keepers. He desires those who love him and seek to obey him from the heart. And these men stood condemned by the very law they boasted in. They saw the law as an end unto itself. But that is not the law's ultimate purpose. The law was always meant to point us to our need of a Savior, our need for atonement, our need for forgiveness, our inability to keep the law, which is why the sacrificial system was established in the first place. But even the sacrificial system was a mere shadow pointing to a greater reality, a greater sacrifice, and a greater atonement. Despite their claims, they did not truly believe the law. They did not truly believe Moses. And that was nowhere more evident than in their treatment of Christ, the one to whom the law points. That's why Jesus says, for if you believe Moses, you would believe me, because he wrote of me. Jesus is, is one more time in this discourse claiming to be the very fulfillment of the Scriptures. Where did Moses write of Jesus? Well, there's actually many places where Moses wrote of Christ, going all the way back to the beginning. 
not only in creation where Christ was present, but then more directly in Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel, where God promised that the seed of the woman would one day come to crush the head of the serpent. But from there, there's allusions and pointers to Christ all over Moses' writing. The ark of Noah as salvation, the offspring of Abraham, the sacrifice of Isaac, the ladder of Jacob, the humiliation and exaltation of Joseph, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the great I Am, the Passover lamb, the bread from heaven, the water from the rock in the desert, the serpent lifted up on the pole, the tabernacle of God, the entire sacrificial system and we could go on and on all of it points to Christ Christ is all over the first five books of the Bible Moses's writings but yet it would seem that there is one particular reference that Jesus has in mind here and that is Moses's direct prophecy of the coming Messiah from Deuteronomy 18 15 where he told the people of Israel this. He said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb in the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. That is a direct description of Christ. God rose up His Son from among the Jews, from among their own brothers, in order to speak through Him and to His people and to the world at large. His words are the final words of God. He reveals all that God has commanded. And those who do not listen to Him, God will require it of them. It's for this reason that Jesus leaves them with this last question in verse 47. But if you do not believe his writings, Moses' writings, how will you believe my words? If those who had God's written revelation could not believe that, how could they believe the word made flesh standing before them right now? If they could not see or believe the truth of Moses' prophecy fulfilled in their very presence, how could they believe the words that Christ spoke unto them? You see, the reality is you cannot reject part of God's revelation and accept another. It is an all-or-nothing proposition. We either believe God or we don't. And if we believe God, then we believe all that He has spoken. And his final word has come through his son. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. He is the final word of God. And Jesus is leaving this final question ringing in their ears. 
a question that implies that they neither believed Moses nor the messianic prophet Moses spoke of, which of course means that God will require it of them. They will give an account for rejecting God's prophet, God's son. There's so much that we could take away from this passage but I want us to leave with two main concluding thoughts. First is the reality that faithfulness to God must be a heart-level reality that is expressed and evidenced by belief in His Son. That's what faithfulness to God looks like. That is what the new covenant is all about. God promised in Ezekiel 36 to give us new hearts, hearts that delight in obeying the law of God, hearts that delight in loving God. And those things are one and the same. For those who have been born again, living that out is just a part of your new nature. This is why 1 John 5 says, This is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. His commandments are not burdensome to those who have new hearts. On the contrary, they are a delight. But the question is, what commandments? How do we define those commandments? Well, thankfully, John gives us the answer to that too. 1 John 3. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He has commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abide in God, and God in Him. That's not burdensome for the true believer. To believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another. You want to spend your life in obedience and love for God. Walk by faith and love His people. That's what it looks like. That's how you love God. That's how you pursue a life of obedience to the Lord. Faith in Christ, love for His people. But the last concluding thought that I want to leave us with is again to note the example of Christ here. Christ knew the cost of these words that were coming out of His mouth. To tell these men these truths was not easy. To tell them that they were void of the love of God and to, condemned by the law of God would most certainly lead to suffering for Him. And as we know and as He knew when He said it, it would actually lead to His death. We hold to truths that the world hates. But they are truths that the world needs. And if we love our neighbors at all, we cannot cease to be proclaimers of the truth. We as Christians, as a community, will continue to face suffering, even death, for the truths that we proclaim. What happened in Nashville happens all over the world on a regular basis. It just doesn't make the news. But here's the truth. It is better to stand for the truth and face loss in this life than to be ashamed of the truth and face loss in the life to come. No matter what persecutions may come, they can't take away from us our great reward. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. 
the worst they can do is usher us into the new, into the new kingdom early. But perhaps, perhaps by speaking the truth, we'll take some with us. Pastor Chad Scruggs has made two statements that I'm aware of since his nine-year-old daughter was murdered on Monday. The first was three words. God is good. And the second was to the press, and he said only this. Through tears we trust that she is in the arms of Jesus who will raise her to life once again. They can't take away our hope. They can't steal that. But you can give them hope with the truths that you know. So speak the truth, church. Fight back with love. Fight back with truth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the example of your son. Thank you that he willingly laid down his life in order the truth of who he is and who you are might be known to a lost and dying world. Oh, Lord, give us the courage to follow the captain of our salvation wherever that may lead. Help us to speak the truth to a lost and dying world. Help us, Lord, to be passionate about who you are and to spend our lives with love for you and be willing to stand, even if that means loss. God, would you comfort your church all over this morning? Would you comfort the Scruggs family and the other families who have suffered loss? Would you show yourself very near to them? And may the blood that was spilled be the seed of the gospel to go forth and advance your kingdom all the more. Father, thank you that we know that all things work together for good even when we can't see it. We love you. We trust you, Lord. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.